Hello and welcome to Advocate, a podcast channel by ASEAN Parliamentarians for Human Rights, or APHR. On this channel, we're delving into some of the most important human rights and democracy issues affecting Southeast Asia. And if you like what you hear, please check out our two earlier series, Parliamentarians at Risk and ASEAN Rakhine Crisis. My name is Oliver Slow, and I'm APHR's Media and Communications Officer. Welcome to episode two of our third series, Anatomy of a Coup, The Coup Makers. Since the Myanmar military launched its coup on February 1st, ousting the democratically elected government of the National League for Democracy, huge nationwide anti-government demonstrations have swept the country. A civil disobedience movement that aims to cripple the government apparatus has also made the country ungovernable for the hunter. The Myanmar military, or Tatmadaw, has responded with its stock standard response of brutality. For the last two months, it has committed murder, beatings, torture, arbitrary arrests, enforced disappearances and looting, all the while imposing media blackouts and internet shutdowns. Its actions could amount to crimes against humanity because of their widespread and systematic nature. At the time of recording, more than 2,700 people have been arrested and at least 570 killed, including children, with that figure rising on a daily basis. In this series, we'll be taking a close look at the major players in Myanmar's current environment, the coup maker, those resisting the coup, and the external influences. We'll be speaking with a broad range of people, both inside and outside the country, to better understand their mindset, interests, and motivations, with a view to identifying measures the international community, including here in Southeast Asia, but also further afield, take to put an end to the military's chaotic rule and ensure that democracy and the will of the people prevail. This episode is our second looking at the country's most powerful institution, the Tatmadaw. Well, the first part looked at the institution itself, how big it is, how it views itself and how it funds itself. This time around, we'll delve into its historic patterns of violence in all corners of the country and how the brutality we're witnessing today is just the latest in a long history of oppression and state terror it has meted out against the Myanmar people. Thanks for listening. We know how brutal this Myanmar military is. Multiple, multiple generations, you know, they have run from the military for uh, several times. In the last few months, people around the world have looked on horrified as videos have emerged from Myanmar of the country's security forces committing horrendous acts of violence against those protesting against their power grab. In one, filmed in Yangon's northern outskirts in early March, police officers are seen dragging a man in a light-coloured t-shirt towards a group of security forces standing nearby. He's offering no resistance. Then an officer walks beside the man and appears to shoot him at point-blank range, kicking him as he falls. The man's body, seemingly lifeless, is left on the ground for a few moments before being dragged away. Another gruesome incident was captured on CCTV in the southerly town of Dawei on March 27, Armed Forces Day, which was the deadliest day of the crackdown so far with more than 100 people killed nationwide. The video shows a soldier on the back of a pickup truck shooting at three passers-by on a motorcycle. Two of the men escape, but the one at the back, later named as Chor Min Lat, was hit and laid still on the ground before his body was dumped onto another truck and driven away. Chor Min Lat died a few days later at a military hospital, and which issued a death certificate saying he had died from, quote, a severe primary brain injury due to fall from cycle. He was 17 years old. There have been many, many more. Yet this is not the first time the Tatmadaw has used brutal force to crack down on protesters. Most famously, thousands, perhaps as many as 10,000, were killed during the huge anti-government demonstrations that swept the country in 1988, or similar tactics were deployed during the Saffron Revolution of 2007. 
Previous hunters also regularly jailed and sometimes tortured political prisoners. Many were killed in custody. In a recent report, Human Rights Watch said the military hunter had forcibly disappeared hundreds of people since the February coup, including politicians, election officials, journalists, activists and protesters. They've refused to confirm their location or allow access to lawyers or family members in violation of international law, Human Rights Watch said. Here's Manning Mong, Human Rights Watch's Myanmar researcher. At the beginning, you know, we started seeing people being picked off, such as the politicians, um, some of the UEC members, well, actually many of the UEC members, and then, of course, activists and some journalists. Um, At the beginning, when they were arresting people in these large groups off the streets, also in nighttime raids, um, you know, we were seeing them being produced eventually or being released eventually. But um, as this continues, the definition of someone being disappeared is that the family or the hasn't heard from them for more than 48 hours. And this is certainly something that's really, really concerning because we're seeing a growing pattern of this where people aren't being produced. Their families don't really know where they are. Saw people being taken to different facilities to begin with. So let's say an MP or an activist or a journalist is taken. They're being taken to a different facility from that of the people who are suspected to be involved in the anti-coup or the civil disobedience movement. Um, And then other prisoners who've been released later are telling us that um, quite often it's the case that after a few days of interrogation in those facilities, then they'll be brought to insane um, without charge to begin with. And then these trials, these closed trials are being happened you know, being held in the inside the prison where only the lawyers allowed. So it's pretty disturbing and we're really, really worried about quite a few of the people who we know haven't been produced. The military has definitely put into practice these types of techniques and tactics before and what it essentially does is it's just a reign of terror. Um, you know, it frightens people, it scares families, they don't know where their family member is, so they shut the hell up and don't want to talk and they don't want to actually tell people what's going on because they're frightened about the repercussions for their loved one inside the prison where they really ultimately don't have a clue what's happening to them. Um, I think one of the things that gets really lost in all of this is that people are being tortured and whether that's being beaten or mistreated, it's just, it's horrific. You know, people are turning up dead after what does appear um, to to be consistent with torture while they're held in custody. And I, I just can't imagine what it's doing for the families and their friends, you know, of the people who've been incarcerated so far. I just, um, I really want to stress just how awful this whole experience is and how much of it... For many in the country, particularly those living in border areas where civil wars have raged for decades, these brutal and sometimes sadistic tactics have been part of their daily lives for decades. In its report, the UN Independent International Fact-Finding Mission on Myanmar called for the investigation and prosecution of the Tatmadaw's commander-in-chief, Senior General Min Ong Lai, and his top leaders for genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes against the Rohingya and other ethnic minorities. Some of the Tatmadaw's worst offenders when it comes to the violence, although by no means the only ones, are members of a specialist group of soldiers known as Light Infantry Divisions, or LIDs. The Tatmadaw's first LID, the 77th, was formed in the middle of the 1960s as a mobile strike force to tackle the growing threat of a communist insurgency in the centre of the country. 
LIDs were established as the backbone of Nguyen's support. That's the dictator who took power in 1962, as discussed in the previous episode, and were a crucial component of his brutal four-cut strategy, which aims to cut insurgents' access to food, funds, intelligence and recruits, and it's a tactic still used by the Tatmadaw today. Today there are 10 LIDs, and they're distinguishable by the dual-numbered names of their units, for example 33rd and 77th, with the exception of the 101st Division. In contrast to most of the Tatmadaw units, they're centrally rather than regionally commanded. Tony Davis, the security expert who we met in the previous episode, has been studying the Tatmadaw for several decades. Whenever there is a flare-up, quite often you have a situation where regional troops can't handle it, right? So elements of these LIDs, are, which are centrally commanded and mobile, light, light infantry divisions, they're mobile, right? Some of them are mechanized, but essentially their prime virtue is their mobility. Sometimes they're flown in, sometimes they're trucked in, whatever it may be, but they're mobile. So these guys are always the go-to guys, and that gives them a sense of pride and a prestige because they are the lean, mean guys. And that translates directly into brutality because they are pushed continually into frontline combat situations where frequently they will take very high casualties, sometimes up to 20%. And the rotations can be long, three months, six months, in, in, a, in a frontline position. In, in any uh, Western context in, the, in context, in the NATO context, that would be totally unacceptable, right? Um, but this is what they do. Myanmar's LIDs are sometimes described as the Tatmadaw's elite force, but Davis argues that this is not exactly accurate. They are elite in a sense, they have this esprit de corps, but they are also unquestionably ruthless and brutal. The LIDs and LID battalions are, let's just say, they, are, they have much greater prestige than, they're elite in the sense of prestige rather than training necessarily. Although they are better trained and to a degree they are better equipped, but elite can be misleading. We're not talking the SAS or Navy SEALs here, right? We're talking battalions which, because they are centrally commanded, are used as a strategic intervention force. The LIDs are notorious for their brutality in Myanmar, and if you've followed the country closely over the last few years, you might have heard of them. That's because they've been implicated in some of the heaviest crackdowns against anti-government demonstrations in recent history, including 1988 and 2007. LID troops, including those from the 33rd, 77th and 101st, have also been involved in the current crackdowns taking place across the country. Some of the LID's most recent atrocities were committed in northern Rakhine State in 2016 and 2017 during the Tatmadaw's deadly assault on the Rohingya. In the few weeks of devastating violence, they were involved in the killing of about 10,000 people, the rape of hundreds of women and the burning of homes and, in some instances, entire villages to the ground. As a result of this violence, more than 740,000 Rohingya fled over the border into Bangladesh. It wasn't only the LIDs, however, who took part in this orgy of violence. 
Others included the Myanmar Police Force, the Border Guard Police, and soldiers from the Tatmadaw's Western Command. For more in-depth information and analysis on this crisis, check out APHR's podcast series released last year, ASEAN's Rakhine Crisis. Unsurprisingly, many Rohingya have a deep-rooted distrust of the military. This is brutal. As we know that Rohingya we face, we know how brutal this Myanmar military is. We have seen this coup leader who ordered to kill thousands of Rohingya, who ordered to slaughter thousands of Rohingya, who ordered to rape thousands of Rohingya women, who ordered to burn alive Rohingya children, about 400 villages burned down. I, don't, I can't say more than that brutal in these walls, like him, a brutal military. That's Tun Kin, a Rohingya living in exile, and president of the Burmese Rohingya Organisation UK. Even before the coup, the situation was already desperate for the Rohingya in Myanmar, particularly the roughly 600,000 still living in Rakhine State, without access to healthcare, education, livelihoods and freedom of movement. Tun Kin said he was concerned the military being back in charge could lead to them restarting their campaign of violence against the Rohingya still there. Although they're generally safer, the coup also creates issues for the roughly one million Rohingya in Bangladesh. Their already thin prospects of returning to their homeland has effectively been brought to a halt with the coup. Of course, they know this is the military in front of their family members, the military, this guy who are now killing on the street of Rangoon, Mandalay and other cities, you know, in Obama. This is the same military uniform guys they slaughtered in front of their father, in front of their family members. So, of course, they are very worrying for their future to return. Travel just a little further north of the Rakhine State and you'll reach Chin State, Myanmar's most remote and certainly one of its most picturesque states. Chin is one of the few parts of Myanmar that is predominantly Christian, a result mainly of Western missionaries coming here in the 20th century, and today roughly 90% of its population identifies as such. The Chin people have witnessed their fair share of state-backed violence at the hands of the Tatmadaw, in particular after the Chin National Front was established in 1988. A 2007 report by the Women's League for Chinland said there was, quote, a clear pattern of impunity for military sexual violence in the state. While military authorities either ignored reports of sexual crimes, covered them up, or threatened survivors. In one incident documented in the report, a woman was stripped naked and tied to a cross in a savage act of mockery against the people's Christian beliefs. In Chin State, there have also been reports of Tatmadaw soldiers, who are majority Buddhist, destroying churches in Chin State, pulling down crosses and replacing them with pagodas. Other ethnic and Christian minorities have gone through a similar ordeal. If you travel all the way across the country to its east, you'll reach Karen State, or Kayin as it's officially called. Animosity between the Karen and the Bamar goes back a long way, and was exacerbated by the divide and rule strategy of the British colonists. Immediately after the British handed Burma her independence in 1948, those grievances came to the fore in the form of an armoured revolt, with the Karen unhappy they hadn't been given a say in their own future. Of Myanmar's seemingly endless list of civil wars, the one with the Karen National Union and its armed wing the Karen National Liberation Army, or KNLA, has been one of its most protracted and brutal. In that conflict, the Tatmadaw has been accused of committing widespread atrocities against the Karen, including murder, burning of villages, forced labour, torture and mass rape. Ethnic armed groups in Myanmar, or EAGs, have been documented committing crimes in these wars, more typically in the form of forced conscription, taxation and detention. Yet some of the animosity between the Karen and the Bamar appeared to be put aside in 2012, when the Karen rebels stepped out of the jungle 
and signed a bilateral ceasefire with the government. Three years later, it was the most influential group to sign the Nationwide Ceasefire Agreement, or NCA. Here's Noor Tutu from the Karen Human Rights Group, or KHRG. Up until uh, 2012, the Damaro carried out systematic attack uh, against villagers as part of its uh, counter-insurgency strategy. And civilians in conflict affected uh, were subjected to a wide range of human rights violations, uh, such as killing, torture. Uh, the Damaro was uh, consistently used uh, villagers, uh, such as forced labor, no? including for military purpose. Uh, often suggesting victims to violence, threats, and life-threatening conditions. So it is also engaged in lootings, extortions, and land confiscations. The overwhelming majority of this abuse uh, have remained and, and punished until now. The ceasefires with the central government didn't bring peace to the Karen Hills, however, and fighting continued between the Tatmadaw and the KNLA. In recent years, much of the tension between the groups has been the result of a large build-up of government troops in the state, in particular regarding a road-building project that the Tatmadaw has said is crucial for development, but which the KNU regards as a violation of the ceasefire agreement. Uh, NCA was already suffering from weak implementations before the military coup. So, uh, so, so fighting between the KNLF and the Tatmadaw continued over the past years, and notably due to an increased Tatmadaw presence in some areas of uh, current state. Karen State has seen heightened tensions between the Tatmadaw and the KNU since the coup. On Armed Forces Day, March 27, shortly after the KNU fighters took control of a Tatmadaw outpost in the state, the military launched airstrikes on the KNU territory for the first time in decades, killing at least three people and forcing thousands to flee. The risk that the ceasefire might not hold is therefore uh, greater than ever now that the military is fully in charge. So, however, as the civilian, we pay a heavy price if uh, Lasky fighting resumes again. Further north is Kachin State, home to another Christian and ethnic minority. If it seems like we're doing a whistle-stop tour of the country, that's because the Tatmadaw has committed atrocities in every corner of Myanmar. The Kachin conflict broke out just over 10 years after independence. And over the next several decades, the Kachin Independence Army, or KIA, emerged as a fierce fighting force that caused many headaches for government troops. The two sides signed a ceasefire in 1994, but that was broken 17 years later as a result of fighting close to the town of Bamog. Since then, there have been several bouts of violence across Kachin, leaving thousands displaced and many killed. Stella Noor is a Kachin activist and said that for decades her people had suffered at the hands of the Tatmadaw. First of all, what is happening in the urban centers, like Yangon, Mandalay, you know, different townships in these urban centers. For them, this is the first time, right, for the population living in these areas. So for them, this is the violence that they had never thought Amado was capable of and would do that against its own population. Um, so my heart as a, as a citizen of, you know, or ethnic person, it breaks my heart. But also at the same time, this is nothing new to us. Our lived experience has been for the past several decades. This is what we've lived through. And if you speak to any elderly, internally displaced persons in Gachin or in Karen, if they're at the IDP camps right now, this is not the first time they have fled in their lives. Multiple, multiple generations, you know, they have run from the military for uh, several times. So this is what happens in, you know, this is our daily experience. 
for the Chin people, particularly those living at the IDP camps now. And then we continue to see, you know, newly displaced um, populations in the, you know, northern Gachin. And uh, at the same time, right, like we have also seen this same type of level of violations against all Gachin population the past five years under the NLD government too. So this is all very common daily experience for ethnic minorities living along the border. Kareni and Shan states are other places that have been the scene of the army's brutality and we haven't gone into here, but that's not to say they haven't witnessed their own fair share of violence. Here is Dr. Sasa, who's emerged as one of the most prominent faces of the anti-coup resistance, has recently appointed the envoy to the United Nations for the committee representing the Pidang Su Lutu, or CRPH. Dr. Sasa is from the Chin minority and was in Naypyidaw on the day of the coup. He managed to escape, however, and spoke to us from his place in hiding. You know, every system is to oppress us. Everything they do is to, to oppress us, to repressive us. So they do it aggressively and with atrocities. And so, uh, I mean, you know, these military generals are the, 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 the military men and women uniform who have uh, killed so many people in 1988. These military generals are the one who killed uh, so many people in 2007 and 2017 and now 2021. So these are the same people in my country, unfortunately, uh, who have committed a crime against humanity, uh, genocides and war crimes and atrocities to, towards ethnic people. Kachin, Karin, Mun, Rakhain, Shan, Chin, we have been suffering under uh, these people uh, of military generals uh, for almost seven decades. Uh, for Karen people, it's uh, 72 years of enduring this pain and the suffering. Uh, they brought atrocities, they brought weapons of rape and torture, forced labor, intimidations, name it, everything of evils. There. What all these places have in common is they are the homes of ethnic and religious minorities, and that's not a coincidence. As discussed in the previous episode, the Tatmadaw's propaganda has always portrayed the army as the protectors of the nation's unity against the threats of these ethnic armed groups. Yet for the Tatmadaw, unity essentially means a Buddhist Burma dominant state. Indeed, another way the Tatmadaw has also tried to maintain control of the country is through policies that promote Burma and Buddhist culture and practices over those of other religious and ethnic groups a process known as Burmanization. It can be witnessed, for example, in the education sector, where the apparent triumphs of Burmese kings and heroes are celebrated over those from other groups, while Buddhist chants are often recited in schools. Typically, non-Buddhists are either expected to join in these chants or sit silently and wait them out, depending on how lenient their teacher is. Tatmadaw has helped establish a system of entrenched and systematic discrimination against those who are not Burma Buddhist. For instance, in Chin State, Residents half-jokingly refer to themselves as suffering from double C or 2C virus, meaning they are Chin Christian in contrast to Burma Buddhist. Salai Lian from the Chin Human Rights Organization explains the concept of 2C virus. Going back to the past experience, of course, when you are being labeled as 2C virus, Chin and Christian, Chin as an ethnic minority and uh, Christian as a religious minority, 
say if you are in a government service, civil, working in the, for the government or civil servant, uh, you would never be promoted. He added that his organisation had documented incidents of Christian crosses being dismantled or destroyed in the state. Well, of the almost 2,000 churches across Chin, none of them have proper registration or recognition from the government, he said. He added that the situation didn't improve after the National League for Democracy came to power in 2016, and that's something we'll look at more closely in the next episode. The church applied for official recognition and uh, registration from a different ministry, and they never received pro, uh, rec- uh, reg- registration or any other uh, official recognition from the government which uh, had a result or impact toward the church or any other institution, religious institution, is that they are in the face of government, they're illegal. What I'm trying to say is they have a systematic, a systemic approach where they, they the military or the Domodo trying to assimilate a Christian minority or Chin, uh, I think, nationalities here. Yeah. This Burmanization does not only exist in Chin state, however. Stella Noor, the Kachin activist we spoke to earlier, said that growing up in the state capital, Michina, she remembered having to learn at school about Burmese history and culture, while the story of her own peoples was sidelined. At school, she said, students were only allowed to speak Burmese. We could not speak Kachin in any formal capacity, in any institutional uh, capacity. Uh, for instance, to get to learn to Kachin language, we uh, needed to go to summer language program organized by our different churches, you know, for, for uh, Kachins being uh, Baptist and Catholics. Uh, so th- th- those Christian churches had to organize summer school for us in order to learn Jingpo language, Kachin languages. And then even then, they needed to get permission. And sometimes they, they didn't get the permission to run those schools. So for us, we were exposed to and this brainwashed, even as ethnic kids, even as a Kachin growing up, right? So they're like every day from nine to five, you know, you're forced to learn the language that's not yours, forced to memorize the history that is not your and that isn't celebrating you and your culture and or even your faith. She said that growing up, she even found herself believing the Tatmadaw's propaganda. Even growing up, you know, for I, grew, I, I remember watching all these, you know, the military movies, right, from the national TV, where always it's the, the military, the Tamado is the good guy, right, like uh, fighting against the so-called, uh, you know, terrorists or rebels. And, you know, I found myself, you know, cheering for the Tamado soldiers that they would be those terrorists. And then later, only when I grew up and when I became, you know, more attuned to, you know, what was happening to our communities and this country, then I came to understand, oh my goodness, you know, I was applauding and cheering for the the, the Tamado when it was, you know, it it was the, the you know, our own respective ethnic armed organization fighting for, you know, the, the survival of our, our own people, for our own community. So the level of, you know, and the gravity of Brahmanization was in every, like, living you know, every day of like my living experience for a long time. Amid the many tragedies of the coup, one thing it does appear to have achieved, however, is a newfound unity among many of the country's different ethnic groups. That's not to say that all of Myanmar's ethnic tensions and grievances between different groups have necessarily been solved overnight, but there have been some steps in the right direction. In particular, many from the Burma majority, who in the centre of the country have long been shielded from the atrocities the Tatmadaw has committed in the border areas, 
They've begun to understand the struggles and violence ethnic minorities have faced for decades. In protests in major cities, banners have been held aloft and social media posts written by Burmese people apologising to the ethnic minorities for not understanding their grievances. Some have even apologised for supporting the Tatmadaw's 2017 crackdown on the Rohingya, which attracted widespread backing in the country. Here's Stella Noor again. Oh my goodness, um, it, it, gives, it, it warms my heart and it gives me so much hope. Um, you know that it's it for the first time in in decades. For the first time, what we're seeing is the the military now that you know the the coup regime and the Tamadot. It's one on one side on its own. It's lonely. They have guns, but it's very in a very lonely place. But then for the people of Burma, the rest of the people, the rest of the citizens are all on the other side opposing this cool regime for the first time, this very same Tamador. Nothing we have done in the past as, you know, ethnic civil societies or human rights um, activists, you know, nothing we've, we did in the past, right, to shed light on the Tamador as the one violating all these human rights abuses. It, we didn't succeed in trying to you know, present our grievances and experiences to these Burma, you know, Buddhist population. Chitsu Wintain is a member of the Burma majority and said the coup had helped her find a newfound understanding of the struggles ethnic minorities have faced in the country. You know, this is really also, I think, really give the Burma people to have the reflection of how the ethnic people would have felt and feel hopeless in the past, in the long, you know, history as well that they have to run and hide and, you know, they have to leave their house, go to another country or stay in the refugee camp. You know, this is, everybody wants, don't want to leave their home. And it really gives us the empathy and the sympathy for the, that it must, it must have been very worse. That hope for a potential reconciliation and unity among the different groups in Myanmar is stemming from the fact that almost everyone in the country does not want to see the military back in power. People from all walks of life and all parts of Myanmar have united against the coup. And these are the people we'll meet in the next episode. This episode of Anatomy of a Coup was written and produced by me, Oliver Slow with editorial input from Elise T.A. Dagusset. APHR's work is also supported by the Swedish International Development Cooperation Agency, or CEDA, the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the Open Societies Foundation. This series is part of APHR's new podcast channel, Advocate, which addresses some of the most important human rights developments in Southeast Asia. Please listen, share, subscribe, and leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts. Future episodes of this podcast series will be available in the coming weeks. And for more information about APHR's work, please visit our website, ASEANMP.org. Thanks for listening.